Welcome to a bonus episode of United Ireland. In recent years, the job of content moderation or content reviewing for social media companies such as Facebook has come under huge scrutiny and not just regarding the actual type of content itself. Today, we're going to talk to somebody who used to work in content moderation to give you an insight into what the job entails. We want to state at the outset that this episode contains descriptions of graphic violence, child abuse, animal cruelty, and other distressing descriptions of violence and so on. So if you're not able for that, or if you're not in the mood for it, um, I would kind of avoid this episode because some of it is a bit hardcore. Um, In July 2018, two years ago, Dispatches on Channel 4 sent an undercover reporter to work at Facebook's then largest centre for UK content moderation in Dublin that was run by CPL, and they still run content moderation sites in Ireland. Um, But this story highlighted the nature of the job that was being done in these sites. Also in 2018, an ex-content moderator uh, called Selena Scola um, sued Facebook after she developed PTSD following daily exposure to acts of violence in the job of content moderation. In May of this year, Facebook agreed on a $52 million settlement paid out to current and former contractors employed by outsourcing firms. Um, Various outsourcing firms work with Facebook to basically fill these roles, including uh, Accenture. Facebook employs around 15,000 content moderators, directly or indirectly. Um, And Facebook's processes and policies are always evolving. And it is important to state that the experience of someone working in this role in 2018 may not be the exact experience of someone working in 2020. But essentially, the fundamentals of the job remain the same. AI and algorithms to identify content that needs to be deleted. Uh, That's all evolving, of course, all the time. In March of this year, for example, YouTube said it would rely more on AI. But in September, it said that AI had failed to match the accuracy of human moderators and took steps to bring more people um, back in to do that job. There have also been multiple reports about working conditions at Facebook's moderation operation in Austin, Texas, For example, um, in January, it was reported in the Financial Times that contractors at a European facility were asked to sign a document explicitly acknowledging that their job could give them post-traumatic stress disorder. So you kind of get a feel for how intense this work is. Um, There has been a smattering of news reports regarding moderators being, quote, forced to work in person in offices in Dublin to review content. And even uh, last week in the doll, Louisa Riley of Sinn Féin raised the issue of workers' rights in terms of psychological damage when it comes to moderating this disturbing content. In this episode, we'll be talking to someone who worked in content moderation around uh, that 2018 period. Uh, They worked in a European city and they're going to give us an insight into the job that they were doing. This person no longer works in this role and they're speaking to us on condition of anonymity. So we have changed their name um, and altered their voice. Very robotic vibes. Um, we've also been in touch with Facebook. Um, and the following and following this interview, you're going to be able to hear what they said in relation to some of the issues we put to them. So here we go. For those who are totally unfamiliar with this subject and this work, what is the job of somebody who works in moderation? Um, basically, you a con- uh, so a social media content moderator is someone who 
looks at different videos or pictures or statuses on Facebook or um, photographs, images on Instagram because they're all one company and you take down um, a, um, according to the company's policies um, what is inappropriate or not. Mm -hmm. And how are you hired? Like, are you out? Is it outsourced? And um, I know there's a lot of uh, outsourcing in Ireland at the moment. But what kind of companies are making up this part of the tech industry? Um, pretty much anybody can get hired um, at these companies. Uh, I had a couple of friends working there, and um, it was uh, my first job back into the workforce. And they were like, "You should totally apply here. It's super easy to get a job." And they pretty much hire anyone in my opinion. Um, the, the, the company that hired me were a contractor, they were IT solutions contractor, and um, had ads, the, the attrition rate was, as you can imagine, absolutely massive, so the ad was permanently up looking for people, and you pretty much guaranteed a job if you applied for it. What kind of people work in, well, like worked in, in, in the company you're working for? Like why, why do people gravitate towards this work? Is it just because it's easy to get a gig? It's easy to get a gig, 100%. It's easy to get a gig. A lot of people in the city where I was um, were, had just moved to the city. It was a lot of people's first job. Um, uh, uh, it was a lot of anyone, it was a real, a real mixture, but, um, uh, I would say a lot of kind of people sort of desperate for a job. The money was really bad as well. Like, obviously you're exposed to a lot of graphic and disturbing content. So there's, there must be um, a lot of psychological support and training in advance. What kind of training did you get? I mean, one thing that always sticks with me when I had my um, quote unquote uh, interview, one of my interview questions were, okay, so you've come into work, you've grabbed your cup of coffee, you sit down at your desk, and the first thing you see is a baby being raped. How do you cope? <laughs> that, that, was, that was an interview question um, for me. And, um, yeah, I mean, the kind of help that they had on board, they had... If I remember correctly, they did have some sort of therapist there or some sort of counsellor. Of course, absolutely nobody used this person because there was the idea that the person who was doing that job worked for the company. So there was, a, there was always a, a feeling of distrust um, that if you said something to their counsellor or therapist that inevitably your manager or whoever would, would know. And then you were like, and it was an issue then. You know, there was, the atmosphere was like, it, it, the, the, I mean, the, the place where I worked was massive, and we had loads of different markets. You had the, you had the UK, you had the UK market, you had the Arabic market, it was absolutely massive. Um, Spanish market, Italian market. So you had people from all over the world speaking all these different languages, doing content moderation for each different market, and with that, their own set of content. For instance, in the Arabic market, there was a lot of pornography in the UK market there was a lot of bullying um Instagram bullying um children stuff like that um so you had specific issues for each different market um and yeah people just kind of got in and just did the job with the idea of being like you're, you're, you're what 
for for me, my experience, there wasn't that much support. Everyone kind of knew what they were, they were getting themselves into and they just got on with it. So were you kind of expected to just learn how to cope with it yourself? There was no like coping mechanism training or no kind of, I suppose, how to avoid being traumatized or? No, you, you dealt with it with your workmates. Um, a lot of, there was a lot of humor involved with that. The people, you know, would kind of try and keep looking up these. I mean, my workmates at the time were absolutely brilliant. Um, and uh, but no, a lot of like one of someone I worked with had uh, mental issues, and it happened to work actually caused uh, them problems even now, like a few years later. It still sort of um, ca- causes causes ongoing issues and flashbacks and stuff like that. Um, um, so support wise, the, 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 for Facebook, their biggest their biggest um, issue is. Uh, dampening PR PR fires is what they call them. These were every day. There was always a PR issue every single day. Their most important thing to them was um, that policy is upheld, and that's what their main focus was. Your well-being was not their focus at all on any level, and you were replaceable, and the attrition level was massive, and that's why the pay was so low. And it was just a job and you only wanted to do it or you didn't. What kind of training did you get then to do the actual job? We had um, training on their policies. So um, we, I believe now their policies are actually all on the platform. But at the time they weren't, they were secret. And we had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And where we had our training, the windows were frosted over and they were always paranoid about reporters being outside all the time. This was like to the point where I thought they were paranoid. Um, and the training was mostly on their policies, like racism issues. Um, obviously, the whole nipple, female nipple uh, policy was a huge thing. Um, beheadings and, you know, you know, murder is OK, but uh, female nudity is not. Um, the top of the, their, the, the top of their list would be nudity and very, very far down the bottom was, you know, uh, violence and um, murder. That wasn't high in their priority at all. Um, I always felt that what they wanted essentially was clicks. And if you could click, it meant a paycheck for them. And so, you know, fighting, violence, uh, animal abuse, um, all that stuff, it generates clicks and it generates advertising and at the heart and soul of it, I felt like they were only interested in making money and the policies were just total bullshit. What did a working day look like then? Like, how long was your shift? What were the breaks like? And what were you doing when you were sitting down at a screen? You come in and you and archaically you, you, you logged on and logged off. Like even if you went to the toilet, you had to log off on your on your computer. So that was your time of going to the toilet, your time of going for a cigarette break, your time. So that was deductive. Um, so I, I was always really shocked by this. Like you, you were very limited in your your movement. You weren't allowed to have your mobile phone at your desk, paper at your desk, a pen at your desk, anything where you could write down information. Um, your Gmail was disabled, Dropbox disabled, anything where you could send information was disabled. But weirdly, Facebook was allowed, um, which never really made sense to me. Um, you you log on and then you would have your tickets for the day and um, it's just an ongoing flow of um, uh, videos, 
photographs and statuses, stuff like that. There was difference. Some people dealt with like fake pages or and stuff like this, but I mostly just dealt with like videos, photographs, statuses. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just clicking on one thing after the other all day long. And of course you had targets and that you had to meet. And, uh, you normally would have the, the, you'd have your, you'd have the tickets on one screen and Facebook policy on another screen. So you're sort of, um, figuring out what is allowed on the platform and what's not allowed on the platform according to their policies. And you just, just did that all day long. You can have like half an hour for your break and then back in and continues doing it. You mentioned tickets there. What is a ticket? A ticket is, um, stuff is like, they have some algorithms, like computer algorithms that, like, um, for instance, like a lot of por- pornography is automatically detected and deleted, but then other stuff that is more ambiguous, um, the only way that it gets in front of moderators' eyes is that the public have to report it. You have to be on Facebook, you see something you think is not right, and you press the report button. And that's the only way the tickets are generated by the users of the platform. So a ticket can be anything. It can be an ISIS video, it can be a dog getting a banger shoved up its hole, it can be um, child cruelty, um, babies being thrown off tables, it can be as simple as a status saying kill all Jews, it could be um, an Instagram photograph of a 10-year-old girl and then her friends are calling her fat or ugly or whatever. Um, it can be anything that it violates their policies. And of course, it could be a nipple in a photograph. So you have a number of tickets which are basically flagged content. And how many of those would you be going through like in an hour? Um, depending on how cut and clear the issue is, you could you could clear a ticket in a couple of seconds. You could t- clear a ticket in maybe a few minutes. You might have to confer with your workmates if it's a grey area. It's not very black and white. Um, but also, it's you know I can remove whatever I want from it. You know I I won't meet my quota or like won't be a good employee. But I can literally delete anything I want. So if I if I was racist, I could leave up racist content. Or if I didn't like gay people, I could delete their content. It's you're not going to you're not going to do well in your job and you're not going you know you're going to get reprimanded by your manager but you can literally do what you want and it's such a transient job so you could go in with an agenda essentially you totally could go in with an agenda i think in the past they've had reporters reporters apply for the jobs and get them and then just be undercover and report facebook has kind of constantly says that it's like changing policies and updated policies what what was the year that you were working for them just so people have context and whether stuff has changed since then uh, i think around 2018 right so quite recent and what's the structure the hierarchy of the workplace like are people checking on you do you have to report back to managers yeah, you have a manager, and then you have a, then the manager has like a, what they call a group manager, and then we also have subject matter experts as well who are experts on policy. Um, they would come to you daily. Like the Facebook policies change daily, and they change more to something will have happened. Like there will be a PR storm about something, and they will change it. Um, 
um, the policies were changing all the time. If there was like a new terrorist uh, incident, the policy would change, and it would change. And the policies were manual, like as well. It's it's different strokes for different folks. Like celebrities are treated in a different way. Um, if it, it, certain things are treated in different ways, if if public opinion is swaying in a certain way, um, you, you're seeing that now and how they're reacting to the American election that. They are taking down some stuff to do with that, but then does that mean will they take down other stuff perhaps in you know Middle Eastern country, or does that same policy apply, or is it just for the American election? They're completely wishy-washy, and they they're always bending to their own agenda. What kind of atmosphere um, is in the workplace when you have that kind of profit-driven kind of approach coming from above, and then you have all the different uh, languages? Uh, split out all over the place is it is it a nice place to work no it wasn't really a nice place to work it was always a, a sense of us versus them um every now and again i think monthly some heads from dublin facebook would come over and and tell people how they're doing a great job and no one really cared that this was happening and if we're doing such a good job pays more money and um, we're talking like minimum wage, like six euro an hour or something. That's what I mean, minimum, minimum wage in the country where I was, less than minimum wage. Um, the money was terrible. And uh, for, the work, for the work that you were doing and how you're contributing to society, um, the, the money was absolutely terrible. And um, and how we were treated as workers and the lack of trust. And um, it was always a sense of us versus them. And then, of course, you were mixed in with, you know, you were mixed in with like, loads of different cultures and that didn't always work very well um people from you know refugees from different com- from different countries and then europeans and then you had people from all over the world you know russians you, you know the baltics and there was always a clash a clash of cultures and um, you know a lot of people who worked for when i worked there were homophobic and that was weird and um so, you know, some people disagreed with uh, Facebook's policies. The policies on racism or homophobia, they felt like it was censorship. So that's weird. Um, so it was, it was an unusual place to work. So coupled with just the contents that you're, you're looking at and you're, you're really dealing with the dregs of the internet and the dregs of society of the stuff that you're taking down from the platform. It's, absolutely unbelievable and shocking and disturbing and probably not talked about enough but you know if we want to talk details and you know there's you know regularly you'd be pulling down ISIS promotional videos and these are you know high definition ultra violent beheadings in slow motion decapitations in slow motion eyes bulging uh blood splattered everywhere, innards and, uh, you know, absolutely horrendous stuff in great detail for a full 10 minutes. And would you have to watch all of that through? Could you? You can skip if you want to. You don't have to watch it from the very start to the very finish, but you have to click through that video and see it through to the end. And if you're skipping, if you're skipping videos or content, someone is, if you're skipping it, but it's moving over to someone else's queue and they're, they're looking at it. It has to be looked at by someone. So someone will look at it, whether it's you or your friends, but someone's going to look at it. Can I just go back to like the workplace things? Like obviously every workplace has, um, loads of different people and with loads of different views, but there's always a, 
a kind of focus and what everyone's trying to deliver on that brings everyone together. But if you have policies that are that people aren't buying into, if they are seeing it as free speech or if they're seeing it as homophobia, how is how are people brought together to kind of, I suppose, be brought in on the policies rather than just people taking it upon themselves? It is a job at the end of the day. You're brought in to do a job. You've signed, uh, you've signed, you've signed, you've signed a non-disclosure agreement. You're being trained in their policies and, you know, you want to do a good job for them. So this is what you have to do. These are our rules and, um, you just do it. And, you know, a lot of people, like I said, it was like, you know, it was a lot of first jobs for some people and people just wanted to do their job and get paid and go home. Um, probably, it's, you know, for some people, I'm sure there was a, an excitement that they were working for one of the biggest social media platforms in the world. Um, but like it, with these contractors, there's none of the, you know, the frills of, you know, working for Facebook with your free lunch and all your little like being bags and massage rooms. Like none of that stuff exists as a, as a contractor. Like it's it's very bone situation. But um, it's just a job and you just did it, you know. In terms of the contractor side of things, is that a recent thing or like because the moderation used to be within Facebook as a whole, but then it was subcontracted? Yeah, it's, it, they have um, they have subcontractors all over the world, world, different centers set up all over the world. Um, I presume the um, demand for content moderation must be absolutely enormous and they don't have the people. And, there's, and you know, and we see it all the time. You know, live stream videos of murders are, you know, they don't come down for 24 hours. They don't come down for 48 hours because literally no, you know, that video hasn't been put in front of someone's eyes for it to be taken down because they don't have the people. The queues are always backlogged or always swamped. There's a, you know, there's a massive amount of content. Like, you know, we're talking billions of users. That's massive amount of user generated content and they do not have the people to keep up with it. So they, you know, they're bringing in, you know, IT solution companies and, you know, contractors all over the world, and and with that, then probably, you know, comes a whole a whole other set of problems. You know, working conditions and you know, pay and all that sort of stuff. How would you feel at the end of of a general day where you were watching all of this stuff? I knew what I was getting myself into because I had two friends who worked there. So um, for me, working there, I on some level I felt like I was doing some kind of good, um, some sort of guardian of the internet. There was a um um there was you know, but I think I think eventually it got into to my psyche. I think the saddest thing about it was I, I was so shocked that there were so many parts of the internet that I didn't even know existed or Facebook groups that I didn't even know existed in terms of like child abuse, child pornography, animal cruelty. Um, it was very, very depressing, like very depressing to know that these things existed and happened and were recorded and then uploaded to, to, to a social media platform. Um, in terms of the content itself, um, I, I, the, the main thing that I got affected by was like, I saw so so many horrendous injuries from uh, content generated from India and countries like this, um, like traffic accidents where people had, bodies had been completely severed in half or complete limbs missing and then memes been made out of someone's death. Like this was another thing that used to upset me that not only had someone died in a horrific way, someone went to the bother of taking a photograph of it, but then to make a meme out of it, like this whole 
there's a whole area of the internet called dank memes, which I didn't know existed until I started working there. So like, so then, and then discovering that such this dark, dark elements. So then I, I always just had this fear that anytime I cycled my bike, that I always was worried that if I did get hit by a car, would someone take a photograph and upload it to the internet and would there be a meme made about it? Um, that was my, my that was my my main thing that stuck with me for it. Probably still to this day. Um, I still anytime I see anything to do with traffic or building construction sites, anything like this, I always I'm always kind of brought back to what kind of horrific injury can come out of it. And uh, I used to have flashbacks at my time as well, like sleeping. Just imagery would just pop into my head. I would feel completely normal, and then I would see someone like totally disturbing body with, you know, intestines pulled out and strung across the street or something. So often violent images would just flash into my head out of nowhere, but it's been nearly three years now, so that's like calmed down. But people I know, and and I always felt like I did okay out of it, like, but I know um, my colleagues and stuff who were tremendously affected, like really badly from it. And one person in particular won't cycle the bike. What things were your co-workers, like you seem to have a lot of kind of resilience, I suppose, around enduring what you were seeing, but what things were your co-workers concerned about? Was it the same kind of stuff that you were? Were they also getting flashbacks and things like that? Anything that had violence in it, like even like in movies and stuff like that, like fake violence, like you just become allergic to any sort of um, violence and um, uh, I mean, what some of my colleagues couldn't sleep at my time, um, you know, I don't know, I think the, the, the thing that, the, probably the most worrying thing about it would be the long-term effects of it, and um, post-traumatic stress disorder was a thing um, as well, uh, I, I think some people in the US sued them over that, um, there's absolutely, there's very little support for what you're looking at, looking at. it's sort of minimised in a way, um, but, you know, this isn't, you know, it's not horror, horror films or movies, like it's real life. I mean, you know, I, plenty of times I looked at uh, cannibalism videos, you know, people cooking up uh, human beings and eating them. Like this, this stuff like this was every day, everyday occurrence. It, it became surreal and you just had coping mechanisms like you either, your body already went into an automatic reaction or you just told yourself that, somehow it can't be real or the video's old or it's I don't know you, you, you have a set of things that you tell yourself when you're looking at it um for me like the most disturbing thing for me was um if a vi- and so and then of course stuff goes viral so when stuff goes viral you've you've removed the video but you will remove that same video 20 30 times in that day and then again the next day you could be removing the same thing for a week and there was one really disturbing child abuse video that kept coming back and I, I, I never experienced such cr- like cruelty in humans at all. Babies just being dropped from a height and um, until they stop crying and you know and, and you know and bled, and that stayed with me. And you know, it's, you know, we're talking three years later. I, 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 could, I, I could, depending on what detail you want in your podcast, I could nearly play, I could retell that video from start to finish to you right now. This is how much that it stuck with me. You just have to kind of block it out. But no support from them. Like, they don't care. How does it make you feel then if uh, Mark Zuckerberg told his staff that uh, some of the reports he thought were a little overdramatic? He's lying. Of course he's going to say that. There's no... There's, 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 it's... 
he's, he has to say that he's portraying his business as something that connects people. And I'm sure it does connect people, but at what consequence? Um, you know, and we, you know, with, with, with the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal, we know exactly what his platform did for Brexit and for the 2016 American election. And, um, these big tech companies need to be torn apart and taken down and regulated. And he, he is, Scumbag. It's interesting that you're talking about when you're watching movies with violence like that that became hard and things like that, because I think there's probably a perception that if you look at all this really horrific content for ages, you become desensitized to it. But I think you're what you're kind of describing is much more complex than that. Like you use coping mechanisms to kind of compartmentalize and protect yourself. But then on the other hand, you become hypersensitive to it as well is that is that right do you think yeah so the compartmentalizing and hypersensitivity would nearly come together so how do i protect myself or i just don't watch you know i would never watch a movie like um um saw or anything like this and probably would have watched those movies back in the day anything that's anyway too gory or too slashery i just can't watch and that's that's a mechanism i use for protecting myself um yeah just there is a contradiction in it because uh, i don't know i've never spoken to anyone who's ever i i don't know what i'm doing to help to or have done to help myself but um I guess you just don't talk about it and you move on from it. And then if you have the boss of the company saying it's overdramatic, well, what's he telling thousands of people? Don't be overdramatic when you do your job. Um, you know, that's the universal, uh, that's like maybe the universal mantra from upper management, you know, just do your job and shut up. Like, you know, that kind of way. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I, I can't really act, like answer how, uh, um, how I've dealt with it or how people deal with it because we never spoke to anyone, we never had any support and um, and, and there was just a sense that no one really, you know, it's, it was all about hitting targets and, you know, SNAs and KPIs and all that sort of stuff um, and to focus on people's, you know, well-being or any of that, I mean it was um, it, it definitely was mentioned like you could go out and have a smoke if you saw something terrible or you could you could skip the video if it was too bad and but like I said like yeah you can go out and have a smoke and you can skip the video but someone someone at the end of the day needs to look at it whether it's you or a colleague the stuff needs to be looked at you know what would you say to somebody thinking of doing this job if you're really desperate like and you want to get a job really easily and need zero experience, but also want to have mental health issues and moving forward in your life, go for it. <laughs> oh, fuck. Like, uh, they literally will hire anyone. You don't need any qualifications or anything. It's just, you know, you know what you're getting yourself into. Like, you know, they're not lying about what you're doing. Um, like I said, my first my interview questions laid it all out. Like, you know, that, that, that's where you can turn around and say no, you know, but it's hard to say no to a job when there's no other jobs going. And what do you think about Facebook as a company on reflection? Like, did you delete your Facebook profile? <laughs> yes. Yes. I deleted my Facebook profile. I've been off Facebook for years. It was like, if there's anything I can do to go against, it was definitely just not be on that platform anyway. Um, but also at the time when I was working for them, um, weirdly the whole Cambridge Analytica um, scandal was breaking. And so, 
that was a massive turning point for me as well. Apart from working in that shithole, um, when all of this was unfolding, that the influence that they had on Brexit, the influence that they had in the 2016 American election, there was a massive part of me that just felt absolutely duped. And um, I have wanted no part of it, wanted no part of the company, wanted no part of Facebook in any way, shape or form. And I think they are uh, lawyers and profit is their goal and profit above everything else. Um, and anything else they say is to support that is just absolute bullshit in my opinion. And so, yeah, that was, that, that was the end of it. That was, I mean, you know, it was kind of, I was always sort of towards the end. I was never really on Facebook that much anyway. And then I just, just put that hold that they have over you. Oh, that album I made in 2010 with all my friends. Oh, I definitely don't want to lose that. I'm not deleting my Facebook. But all I ever do is message people. It's my biggest source of contacts. I won't delete it. And it's not true. You know what I mean? You, your, your photographs are saved somewhere else. You have an email. Like it's things you tell yourself, but it's a very, it's a psychological tool that they use to keep you there. Like they keep you, keep you, keep you, keep you. And they want you there and they want to generate user content and they want to get the clicks and they want to make money. And all they want to do is make money and everything else involves. Mary, thank you very much for your insight. Um, it's very, very troubling. Um, but we really appreciate your honesty um, and, and courage in coming for, forward and letting people uh, know about this this job that is uh, troubling and I suppose also speaks to a kind of darker part of humanity as well. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Um, so we contacted Facebook regarding some of the issues raised in this episode. And with regards to well-being supportive people working on reviewing content, Facebook said, we are committed to providing support for those that review content for Facebook as we recognize reviewing certain types of content can sometimes be difficult. Everyone who reviews content for Facebook goes through an in-depth training program on our community standards and has access to extensive psychological support to ensure their well-being. This includes on-site support with trained practitioners, an on-call service, and access to private healthcare from the first day of employment. We are also employing technical solutions to limit their exposure to graphic material as much as possible. This is an important issue, and we are committed to getting this right. Facebook also said that content reviewers go through, um, oh yeah, as you mentioned, Andre, that in-depth training program um, at Kavalen, which is one of the company's uh, moderators are working for in Dublin, Facebook say that this support includes well-being training and support before and after training modules, peer support and supervision for those reviewing certain content, enhanced training on anxiety awareness, trauma, stress management and personal resilience breakout areas to give content reviewers the option to step away from their desks if needed access to private healthcare, already mentioned, and a 24-7 health support model with practitioners on site. That's kind of repeating what they said in the statement in some ways. On technical solutions uh, to limit reviewers' exposure to graphic material as much as possible, Facebook says they include tools to blur graphic images as default before reviewing them, options that allow people to view content in black and white, and tools that highlight in videos where reports were made so they don't have to review all of the footage. They also said that they employ technology to ensure content reviewers 
or not viewing graphic content back to back for long periods of time. Covalent, that company again, hold exit interviews with employees uh, that are leaving. The on-call support service available through the private healthcare provider remains in place for six months after an employee leaves. The counselling and mental health services provided by an independent service provider who has expertise in this area. You kind of want them to really, I suppose. Client confidentiality, Facebook says, is a requirement of the client-patient relationship and we trust the healthcare professionals we work with to uphold this responsibility. And on the situation of people working in offices during lockdown in Dublin, Facebook told us, our focus is on how content review can be done in a way that keeps our reviewers safe. We work with our partners to put strict health and safety measures in place, make sure they're followed and disclosed any confirmed cases of illness. A Facebook spokesperson also highlighted additional um, health and safety measures that they say not only meet, but go beyond those required by the HSE. Um, Those include deep cleaning the buildings daily. There's a lot of stuff that people who are working, uh, you know, in, in, in person jobs uh, during the pandemic, deep cleaning and giving people masks and hand sanitizer, which you'd kind of expect really. Um, They also say that they provide transport to and from work to employees who usually rely on public transport so that they can avoid public transport and that employees with underlying conditions are not required to work from the office. They are working on content that can be reviewed at home. They also said a number of employees who are living with vulnerable people are also working from home. Obviously, there's been some contention there in the various news reports with regards to people who may be living with somebody who's high risk having to go into the office. So Facebook say a number of employees living with vulnerable people are also working from home. So There you go. That's Facebook's side of things. And thank you for listening to United Ireland uh, and to this bonus episode. And remember to support our work on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland.